I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. We heard a lot during the pandemic about the revolving door of kids in acute crisis going to emergency rooms, sometimes in adult emergency rooms, and then getting a psychiatric bed, and then it's there's a shortage, so they're discharged too soon, and there's not a lot of in-between availability, day programs, or other things that could support them coming back into the community. So that's that's a really terrible problem. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. Today, I have author and reporter Anya Kamenitz back on the podcast to talk about her new book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. The Stolen Year is a powerful look at how the pandemic disrupted children's lives, their learning, mental health, and overall well-being. The Stolen Year wasn't written specifically for parents of differently wired children, but I thought it was really important to explore what the research and data shows the cost of the past two years has been for our most valuable resources, our kids, as well as consider the question, where do we go from here? During our conversation, we talked about the trends on decreasing graduation rates, the impact of food scarcity on children and adolescents, and caregiver depression. We also talked about the kinds of resources families need to recover from the pandemic, especially within marginalized communities and more severely impacted populations. And we got into so much more. But before we dive in, here's a little more about Anya. Anya Kamenitz has covered education for many years, including for NPR, where she also co-created the podcast Life Kit Parenting in partnership with Sesame Workshop. Anya has contributed to the New York Times, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, and Slate, and has been featured in documentaries shown on PBS, CNN, HBO, and Vice. She's also the author of several books, including Generation Debt, The Test, Why Our Schools Are Obsessed with Standardized Testing, But You Don't Have to Be, and the book that we discussed together when Anya first appeared on my show, The Art of Screen Time. 
This is a thought-provoking, timely conversation. I hope you get a lot out of it. All right, thanks so much for letting me share this good news. And now here is my conversation with Anya Kamenetz. Hey, Anya, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me back. We were just talking before I hit record and I went back in my archives to see when we last had our conversation. So it was like, oh, I was just last year, we were talking about your book, The Art of Screen Time, and it was over four years ago. So I don't really know how that happened, but here we are. <laughs> it's been a busy time for a lot of people. <laughs> yes, intense, busy time. And in that time, you have parented through a pandemic, been on this journey with the rest of us, but you've also just come out with a book, which we're going to talk about today. It's called The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. Before we get into the book, I actually would love to know, when did you know you were going to write this book? And what was your purpose in diving into this? Yeah, absolutely. So the pandemic started, obviously, it was really hit the ground running for my team at NPR at the time. You know, we were covering education. Education all of a sudden was an enormous international story. But I also had to figure out, you know, I had my husband's working full time. His job pivoted to home. My kids were three and eight years old. So our neighbor came in and gave us about 20 hours a week of childcare, which was amazing and made it possible. So I was documenting right away. I was spotting the trends right away. I had... I think a unique perspective because of my experiences. I'm from New Orleans originally. It's my hometown. And I was there right after Katrina. I was there for a lot of that year back and forth, the year after Katrina, as a reporter, also as a as a person there. And also returned 10 years later with NPR and we did a huge project reporting on the aftermath. And, you know, with that storm, obviously there was the the displacement of people, there was the upheaval. And schools closed. So the schools in that city closed their doors for a semester. Most kids were out of school for, you know, usually for a few weeks. They enrolled elsewhere. Eventually they came back. But I knew that it had impacts that had lingered for years. So that's what I was keeping my eye on. And then after a few months had passed, it was my editor actually from The Art of Screen Time, Ben Adams, who came to me and was like, look, you, you're there. You're on the front lines. This is a major, major thing that's happening. I think that you should be writing a book about it. I love that you had that lens of having had that experience in New Orleans with Katrina, because you brought that into this. And it, it kind of helps set up this idea that you said the story of what happened to children during the pandemic isn't over by a long shot. And so I'd love to know more about what you mean by that and talk about some of what you're seeing or what you researched and found are some of the longer lasting impacts on kids. Yeah. So, we, I mean, we have to start right away by by saying that, you know, this is such a hugely unequal and divided country and the impact of the pandemic is also hugely unequal. So there's a significant chunk of children who are going to be quite resilient because they have the protective circumstances of, and that's everything, that's genetics, it's family, it's having financial stability, an adult in the home who's capable of, of helping them. So there's a chunk of kids who are going to be fine. There is a chunk of kids, and we're seeing on average that children are in a position where they have missed learning that will take them years. It will take them years to be resuming their previous academic trajectory. So so that's a concern. Some of those kids are in critical periods. So they they skipped kindergarten or they didn't learn to read in a critical period, you know, by the age of eight or nine or ten. 
we're really concerned about them because they might need extra extra help to get back on track. It's not just a matter of time. And then our kids with special needs, they actually regressed. So we see kids that in developmental disabilities follow developmental pathways. So kids who don't have appropriate interventions when it matters, they can lose ground. And I, I, I tell the story in the book of a girl who had severe multiple disabilities and she regressed from walking to crawling at the age of 10 years old. So it's a very dramatic example. But And then there's our kids who experience traumas during the pandemic. The pandemic raised the the chances of trauma. You know, we have 200,000 children that lost a caregiver, for example. Yeah. When you talk about it that way, it really is, first of all, just a reminder that there's such a range of experiences. That was something you talk a lot about in the book and I think is so important to reinforce. You know, my audience is predominantly parents of neurodivergent kids. So that special needs piece would resonate. But then within that, there's the intersectionality of all different kinds of backgrounds and socioeconomic status and whether you're living in a city and what your family makeup is. And that I found very interesting this idea of learning loss, that phrase has been something that we've been hearing about for a couple of years. And there seems to have been a conversation about we shouldn't be worried about learning loss, we should be focusing on mental health and mental well being. And I'm just wondering if that's come up for you in conversations that you've had that it seems to be an either or, but really, it's a I would think a both and. I think that's exactly right. And I think some of it has to do with the difference between how we talk to our kids and how we talk about our kids. Every kid just is where they are, right? Exactly where they are at this moment. And they're not, they haven't lost. They're not, you know, marked. They're, we shouldn't stigmatize them or shame them. It's not their fault that they didn't have the instruction that they needed and deserved. That's why I called my book The Stolen Year instead of The Lost Year, because I didn't want the kids to take that burden of being like, oh, we missed something. So when we talk about our kids, of course, we care the most about their happiness But when we talk about our responsibility as adults, and I'm talking about both parents and schools, we need to be very, very concerned about their learning and their well-being. And it should never be a both and. It should be possible to create schools that are both joyful and rigorous, that hold kids to standards. Because part of what kids love about school is the opportunity to be at their edge and to grow and to progress and the pride that they take in doing that. So to, to take away the standards because of something that they missed that, we, you know, that we deprive them from, I don't think it would be fair. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm remembering that just this morning, I saw Education Week came out with a special report. I don't know if you had a chance to see that. I have not dived in yet, but it's about obstacles mounting for students as the pandemic deepens. It's talking about plunging graduation rates, fewer kids are just showing up and completing school. I'm just wondering, like any thoughts that you have around that, how we might see this play out in trends that you've seen? Yeah, I'm glad you you brought it back to that because the biggest impact on the Katrina children was the kids who never came back to school. So these are teenagers. They're teenagers that drifted off. And the impact, then the percentage of children and young, so the percentage of young people in that city 10 years on, so t- this is a cascading effect, was among the highest in the country. Young people that are not in school and not employed. So they're considered disconnected or opportunity youth is another phrase. We have had this historic drop in school enrollment, K-12 school enrollment. And there is a percentage of those kids that are unaccounted for. So the superintendent of Los Angeles Public Schools was recently in the press talking about this because he said, I'm going to personally take on 
30 of our missing kids and try myself personally to connect with them because I need to understand what's going on here. They've got thousands of missing students, students who are no longer enrolled in Los Angeles public schools and they don't know where they're at. Of those 30, he was able to connect with only 10 of them, which shows the problem. The 10 that he met are teenagers. Oftentimes they're from immigrant families. They have no functional adult at home. Somebody has an addiction or they're incarcerated. They are not enrolled in school because they're working. And in many cases, he found they had younger siblings who were not enrolled in school. I'm really troubled by that, that we would have in a major city in the 21st century in America, young children who had not been enrolled in school. How many are there? Right. And I want to just set this up for listeners too. I want to talk about some of the different findings that you share in the book with regards to school attendance. We'll talk about mental health and more deeply about special education, but we will also talk about where we're moving. Like, what can we do about this too? So, I mean, this is a pretty heavy conversation. So I just want to say that up front. I, I get that. And I think it's really important work that you've done to really look at the data to look at what has really happened. Because as you said, we're going to see the effects of this for a really long time. I really want to thank you for bringing this to your listeners. And then thanks to your listeners for hanging in there, because this is about parenting. It's also about all of the kids, right? This is about a better country. And it's about every kid, not just our kids. Yeah, such a good reminder. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, 
six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I wanted to ask about this idea of traumas or ACEs. So you talk about adverse childhood experiences in the book. And certainly we know that many children experienced traumas from losing family members, from going through substantial hardships as a result of the pandemic. Across the board, do you see or do experts consider the pandemic itself to be an ACE for every child or does it really depend on their unique experience through it? I was really reassured to hear from trauma specialists that they didn't consider the pandemic an ACE all by itself. The way that it might have been, you know, to experience a hurricane or something that displaced you from your family, it's definitely a difficult experience for everyone, right? And and so that's fair. And that's part of our kids' stories that they're going to tell. But the better way of thinking about the pandemic is that it is like the climate crisis. It raised the chances of a particular child going through an ACE. So, and I would relate this to many of the families that I talked to, you know, and and similarly to poverty raises your chances of going through an ACE, right? Something like an addiction or a parent's mental health crisis or sexual abuse can happen to any child at any income level, but the instability is more likely to happen with there's financial pressures on the household as well. So yeah, so that that's really the way to think about it. There's There's more ACEs to going around during the pandemic, but not that the pandemic was an ACE for every child. Right. That makes sense. And when you're talking about mental health too, which again is something we know that neurodivergent kids have higher rates of mental health challenges, depression, anxiety in the best of times. And certainly I have heard from my listeners and in this community, the ways in which our kids are struggling. I've seen it. It's very challenging. And you wrote that, I found this a very surprising statistic. In 2019, there were just 8,300 practicing child and adolescent psychiatrists for an estimated 15 million children who could have used their help. That was shocking to me. And that was before the pandemic. And you said experts expect to see the pandemic cast a shadow on mental health across the population for a decade or two to come. Any other insights into mental health of kids or what you learned that would be insightful for my listeners? Well, I'm struggling to think about a way to to pose this in a positive fashion. The, the pipeline problem is egregious. The lack of mental health providers at all levels, from school counselors to you know acute emergency care physicians, psychiatrists, is egregious, and it leads to far too many children getting medication instead of therapy and other supportive settings that could be very helpful for them. We heard a lot during the pandemic about the revolving door of kids in acute crisis going to emergency rooms, sometimes in adult emergency rooms, and then getting a psychiatric bed. And then it's 
there's a shortage, so they're discharged too soon. And there's not a lot of in-between availability day programs or other things that could support them coming back into the community. So that's that's a really terrible problem. I do see some bright spots emerging on the other end of the spectrum, which is thinking about mental health as a public health issue that it is up to the whole community to support. So there's a lot that you can do in prevention when you remove the stigma of mental health, of talking about it, when teachers are aware, when parents are aware, they know the questions to ask, they know how to intervene at the right time, that we're reducing levels of bullying in our classrooms, for example, which is something that can push kids over the edge. So there's there's a lot that can be done. And I know that schools are really trying hard, but long term, yeah, we need more practitioners and we need more more kids getting more support. Yeah, and I do see that. And I feel like that is one of the ways this generation has been permanently impacted, but perhaps in a positive way by COVID is there does seem to be kind of a breaking down of stigmas and not being willing to talk about certain things or even the, I mean, I don't know any kid who who doesn't openly talk about their therapist or the meds that they're on. It's just kind of part of their culture now. Yeah, I think that's that's really true. And I think it is to the good to have a vocabulary about mental health. I mean, if you think about, I'll go back to bullying and school violence, because I know that impacts a lot of children. In the 1980s and 1990s, we were in paradigm of behavior and discipline. And children's aggression towards each other wasn't always, always seen as the school's problem. And that really hurt a lot of kids, especially, I mean, narrative injured kids would definitely be in, in that category. Now schools are taking that on and saying, we have zero tolerance policy, we are kind, and they're promoting kindness. And so beyond just talking about specific diagnoses, being aware of kids having different needs and that we need to treat each other well, I think is something that has been a really positive change. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back and talk about hunger. You mentioned food scarcity before, and you know you have a whole chapter on hunger and the long-term impact of food insecurity on kids. So could you talk a little bit more about that as well as what you found in terms of how many children and adolescents were impacted by that during COVID? So the school food program is massive, and there are about 30 million children who through free and reduced lunch depend on those meals. And despite heroic efforts, when schools shut down, those meals were not getting to students in the same way. And not just food insecurity, but actual hunger among young children spiked to levels that hunger researchers had not seen in the modern era in April and May of 2020. And they remained elevated through the end of the year, despite cash assistance that did go out to families. The impact of that, obviously, there's physical impact. I mean, children need to be fed on a daily basis. (laughs) <laughs> clearly. There's also mental health impacts from the anxiety and the and the children absorbing the parents' anxiety. You know, I talked to families who stood in food lines, who spent hours in food lines. I talked to a mother who wept as she described going to her former boss, asking for a burrito, and he turns her away because she asked for three burritos instead of two. So the shame of that, the stigma of that, and the anxiety of it does impact children. We know that there's Specifically for teenagers, it's been shown mental health impacts, independent of just poverty alone, from food insecurity because of teenagers taking that on and feeling responsible and feeling like they have to somehow help their their families address this. So it's major. It's major. And it was 
somewhat overlooked, I feel like, in the thick of things. Yeah, I mean, there were so many things that were overlooked, right? I mean, I think that is one of the biggest challenges is by the time we kind of realized all the things falling through the cracks, so much damage was already in progress of being done. That's exactly right. And that is a, a symptom of what I talk about in the in in the book, which is that America didn't have the social welfare infrastructure in place to protect our children before the pandemic started. There were many countries where they already have an infrastructure for family paid leave, for child tax credit, so direct cash support to families. So it was really just a matter of turning the dials and ramping that up in order to protect the children. And for us, we're really depending on this jerry-built system where there were all these points of failure. I mean, and it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible what, for example, food service workers did. They were converted into frontline workers overnight, but it wasn't enough. And that's the heartbreaking part. You also talk about camp and the impact of kids not having that opportunity to go to camp over the summer. And I'm just wondering, what did you find about the effects on kids of not having those experiences? Well, there's a number of of ways to talk about this. I mean, big picture, we know that there was a drop in physical activity among children. Children gained weight at high levels. There's some worrying signs about spiking levels of diabetes. So so overall, the healthy living aspects of it is something we should be concerned about as far as it affects kids' health. You know, having the enrichment and the ability to escape your home for some people, you know, be with other caring adults and form those relationships that could be really protective for children who unfortunately maybe don't have the supports at home is huge. And so, you know, the loss of sports, recreational activities, enrichment activities, as well as summer camp, it all kind of goes to that. You talk about George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement as well, which was just such a part of 2020 and the experience for so many youth, you know, getting actively involved, showing up at protests. I'm just wondering what you learned about how that summer and what we went through as a country, you know, this is obviously a pretty US centric conversation we're having, but what we went through, how you see that impacting young people moving forward. That's such a great question, Debbie. The Black Lives Matter movement of summer 2020 was a global movement and one of the largest global protest movements that the world has seen and and overwhelmingly peaceful, despite some of the, you know, media depictions. And in many places led by teenagers, there are many, many teenagers that I spoke to who organized their local marches. I think it was incredibly cathartic. I think it was incredibly heartening for the people that were part of it. But I also think that in the retrospect, it's pretty disappointing because we saw that there wasn't necessarily a lasting impact on race relations in the United States. It certainly didn't spell an end to extrajudicial killings. It didn't stop the fact that the pandemic had a disproportionate impact on communities of color. It didn't stop the the anti-Asian hatred and, and attacks that we've seen. So I think it's a tricky legacy. You know, social change doesn't happen overnight. And I hope that for the young people and their families who participated in those movements, that they felt that sense of efficacy and that sense of hope And that it's not overly undermined by the fact that we haven't had incredibly large strides in racial equity since then. We'll be right back after this quick break. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. 
I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Let's talk about the caregivers. You talk about a study about caregiver depression and how that was the most significant predictor of self-reported lower quality in parenting. And again, this is something we talked a lot about on the podcast and there we've all read the articles about our surge capacity is depleted and we're all just struggling. And I actually think so many of us still are. I don't really feel like we've recovered, at least the parents and caregivers that I'm in community with. So could you talk a little bit more about that piece and what you found? Children and their families are interconnected. We're all part of one system. And the emotional labor that parents and honestly speaking, primarily mothers. So, I mean, families have a lot of different configurations and a lot of different distributions of work, but there are many, many reasons why so often in heterosexual partnerships that mothers took on the lion's share of worrying about the pandemic, caring for everyone else and overseeing other people's well-being. So it's very real because there's vicarious trauma, right? There's moral injury, feeling like you can't you, you did everything you could and it still wasn't enough. Your child still suffered. There's burnout. And the recovery process begins after it's over, but we never had a clear indicator that it was over. So a lot of us have just been, you know, running on fumes for a really long time. I'm put in mind of, this is kind of a dramatic comparison, but I was, I had the chance to go to Ukraine for NPR in May. So covering the war and primarily I was covering people that were displaced And so I was in an internally displaced person center talking to the psychiatrist there. And they said, every day mothers come and they ask me about their children's well-being. And every day I tell them, you have to take care of yourself because what your child needs is a person who's whole and able to function. Yeah, I mean, I 
just earlier today was talking with Deb Dana, who is an expert in the polyvagal theory. And we talked about how important it is for parents to really get to know their nervous system so that we can co-regulate for our children. So I just really appreciate that reminder, how important it is that we do take care of ourselves. I want to zoom out a little bit and just hear from you. First of all, what are you finding in terms of the kinds of resources that families need to recover, especially considering as we've been talking about this disproportionate impact of the pandemic on marginalized communities, families of color? Could you talk more about what do we need to kind of repair and move forward in a way that can really support these families and kids? Yeah, I love that question. Our schools have money to spend. They got $190 billion from the federal government on top of their normal appropriations to try to meet these needs. And they've been trying to staff up. They've been trying to offer extra learning time. Some parents are not taking advantage of that. And it's a really interesting dynamic because the the surveys show that many parents also are not that concerned about their kids learning. They they may be concerned about their well-being and that they may not want to Voiced on them, you know, extra learning time, tutoring time, that that feels punitive or it feels inappropriate. So, so really thinking clearly about what, what your goals are for your kids and your individual learner and the progress that they're making is important. Asking what resources are available at the school, if there is more supplemental resources, if there is more social emotional learning programs, I think is a good, is a good place to go with it. I know for kids with IEPs that a lot of them are pushing to, to reevaluate and to kind of you know, get a more appropriate level of services provided. And that can be a really arduous process. Have you found that there is an increase in parents asking for IEPs? Because I can imagine that a lot of parents recognized learning styles that they weren't aware of before and maybe discovered some neurodivergence among their kids that they just didn't know about before. That's a really interesting question. I think it could cut both ways, though, because kids are not, parents weren't necessarily seeing their kids in comparison with other kids. And there's also a lot of behaviors or difficulties that you might just put it down to the pandemic itself. I talked to a kindergarten teacher about this. She didn't get her kids back in the classroom until April of 2021. And this is in San Francisco. And she was like, you know, I'm I'm sitting here looking at a child, a kindergartner who can't sit still. If it was September, I feel like I could work with them and I would know where they were at. If it's May, I don't know. I don't know if they need a referral or not because they just missed all that time. So it may mask some diagnoses. It may delay some diagnoses because parents don't know really. And maybe the teachers don't know either. Yeah, that makes sense. I was speaking with someone who is an eighth grade teacher and I was asking her, oh, gosh, how's that going this year? Because, you know, eighth grade can be a pretty intense year. Socially, middle schools can be rough. And she said, you know what, it's actually great because my kids are essentially like fifth or sixth graders. Wow. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating insight. And but also makes me wonder, how does that play out? Like, what does that look like when it comes to launching to, you know, what this looks like for young adults? Do you have thoughts about that? I've been hearing this exact same thing. And it's been put out from about kids at all, all ages. So I think it's a giant social experiment and it's hard to know how it's going to play out. We haven't seen this exact thing happening before. I guess the best case scenario with a lot of thoughtfulness, and I, I thought about this in terms of neurodivergent kids, because I know, I know people who work with those kids who are 
you're so they're so thoughtful and intentional about helping them scaffold their social development, right? In a way that we don't often think about for typical kids, making them social stories and putting them in different environments where they can, you know, be at their edge, but they feel comfortable at the same time talking to, you know, the friend's parents and, and talking about what's expected and having, you know, the same strategies for behavior, both home and at school. So these are strategies that might be adopted for more typical kids, where simply what you're trying to do is help them progress socially, right? And and maybe it could be good because you think about middle school, my daughter is starting middle school this year and it's oftentimes Lord of the Flies, right? We kind of, we're like, well, they're old enough to be on their own. That means they don't really need supervision and we, you know, we don't really need input from us until, oh my God, something terrible happened with you know texting or whatever. And then we're kind of trying to swoop in. But can we be thoughtful in helping our kids develop and can mental health professionals to the extent they're available, help us do that? That's kind of my my question. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I talk a lot about is this idea that every child is on their own unique developmental timeline, right? That's a big tenet of tilt parenting and just helping parents recognize that their child has their own path and it's going to be asynchronous. It's going to look very different. And so I love what you shared because I do feel that a lot of strategies that would help differently wired kids can really benefit all children. And maybe this disruption is going to kind of support all children. If schools can kind of get behind it, right, and not try to just get everybody caught up, but really lean into social emotional learning, lean into doing this work. I think that's exactly right. And over the summer, my my daughter had an opportunity to spend time with a friend of ours who's autistic. And, you know, his mom is there. And she's incredibly thoughtful about you know, helping lubricate things socially for him without being overbearing and without stigmatizing. And all the kids that were there responded really well <laughs> to that kind of positive intervention. And yeah, I think it could be a really good thing. That's great. As kind of a last wrapping it up question, again, I just want to reiterate for listeners, this book is called The Stolen Year. And it is very thoughtfully and deeply reported. It was very insightful and really painted a rich picture for the impact on all these different areas of the COVID pandemic on our kids and what was actually happening in other communities that you as a reader may not be aware of. So definitely check out Anya's book. But I want to know if we were to zoom out and think about kind of lessons learned, right? If this is our, you always leave a meeting with your next steps. What are the key takeaways that you hope we as listeners who maybe want to be more activists in our lives or, you know, how can we kind of move forward with our new learning? Yeah, I love that question. I think, and thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate it. I think that this is not just a something that can be solved on the family level or even on the school level. I think a lot of the changes that need to be made are national policy changes that would improve the conditions, the working conditions for caregivers, for teachers, we need a child tax credit that reduces child poverty so that there aren't so many kids coming into school with poverty and the traumas of poverty. It's a multi-system issue and it's a political issue. And I, I think, you know, I, I would encourage moms, parents who listen to this to see their struggles in the context of those broader struggles as much as they can. And as well as, you know, maintaining that optimism for your own kids, you know, take the time for yourself and understand that your kids do have an opportunity to come back from this and it will be part of their stories. It will be part of all of our stories. 
but that doesn't mean have to be something that we're, you know, entirely regretful of. We can say that we, we got through something really tough and we did it together. What a great note to end this on. Anya, thank you so much. And now I just have to ask, are you working on a new book? It's something you can share and it's fine if you aren't or you don't, but I have to ask. Yeah. So my focus right now is on the climate crisis and there's a lot of common threads. So I'm thinking a lot about sort of generational justice and how we help our kids grow and thrive on this changing planet. So I'm working on an initiative with the Aspen Institute to help get more climate messaging into kids' media. And I'm working on my own kids' media projects. And eventually, yes, there's going to be a book um, that will hopefully combine some of these, these policy interests and concerns and sort of talk about how we talk about the future with our kids and how we shape the future with our kids. Well, good luck with that. I really just appreciate the way that you show up and the way that you you do all the hard works and then interpret it for us, interpret this really important information in a way that is very accessible and important that we know about. So thank you so much. Thank you for everything you shared today. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.